Welcome back to another episode of the Psycho Podcast. I'm your host, Margot Underwood, and this is a place where I have the pleasure of interviewing specialists, authors, doctors, psychologists on the topics of human sexuality. This is a place where we break stigmas and bust hymens, deconstruct taboos, initiate more self-pleasure in our lives, expose alternative therapies to approach these sensitive topics. Thanks for joining me here. Today, we are once again joined by the wonderful Dr. Daryl Ray, religious trauma specialist and founder of recoveringfromreligion.org and the Secular Therapy Project. He is also the founder and creator of the Secular Sexuality Podcasts and author of Sex and God, as well as the God Virus. So today is going to be part three of a part four series, and we are covering religious trauma and what it looks like to deprogram ourselves. What even is trauma and how does it affect our nervous system? We go into detail here. We also lay some importance on the ability to self-regulate and what that looks like. What is it like to get out of a trauma cycle and how hard is that? Let's go ahead and jump into it. All right. Welcome back, Dr. Daryl. We have a very special topic today, uh, religious trauma and deprogramming yourself. Um, I've been getting a lot of really good feedback from all of the other episodes we've we've created together. Uh, And funny enough, um, I talked to my mom on the phone yesterday and she uh, she has she used to be a diehard Christian, and now she has kind of evolved into the more like spirituality based um, after the church kind of screwed her over. Um, and her she she you know she was like your episode. She's like the title of your first episode on religion it was um religion with dr daryl ray and the god virus and she's just said that she felt challenged i guess like her she wouldn't even read the description because she already had um assumptions about what it was about she thought that i was going to try and convince people to uh, walk away from their religion. And I mean, she came up with all of this in her head. And when I started explaining to her what the episode was about, she was like, Oh, okay. I mean, okay. And now I think I'll listen to it, but I just felt like my faith was being challenged. Um, and so that kind of leads me to this question of like, do you differentiate between faith and religion? And, uh, I mean, that was kind of a deep-seated programming that I saw in her of, like, she saw a word and she felt like she needed to protect, you know, something inside of her. Right, yeah. Um, I don't look at it as much about just religion, per se. I look at it as um, the use of bad ideas specifically mm-hmm. supernatural it, it there's just no evidence for the supernatural and supernatural ideas have gotten humans in trouble for thousands of years you know mm-hmm. there's so many you know the plague let's beat people and kill people to keep the plague from coming into our town I mean, that's 1300 years ago we still see people talking about that today we see if you pray hard enough you won't get the covid you know, there's all sorts of things that religion is doing because of a supernatural bad idea. And the bad ideas uh, hurt people, harm people deeply. I mean, we're seeing this week the little Nas X uh, videos 
where he's talking about yeah. how, you know, how harmful these ideas are, bad ideas about uh, LGBTQ community and, and, you know, people's sexuality and gender identity. So I, I don't, you know, if somebody wants to be religious, go for it. The trouble is you're going to, you can't be religious without espousing bad ideas, ideas that are, have no basis in reality and no evidence for. Now, that's not to say people don't really feel shit. They do feel stuff because our brains are just programmed that way. The problem is we do something in psychology. We call it mis, a misattribution. I have, I have a funny feeling about something, and I attribute that to an angel talking to me. Now, <laughs> that's the kind of thing. I prayed to God last night, and I won the lottery today. So we misattribute these there are logical, rational explanations for almost all of these feelings that we get. But because for thousands of years, we had no explanation for these feelings. We, and we had no science. So we learned as a culture, as a, as a human race, to attribute things to supernatural, supernatural entities, you know, whether that could be the spirit in the tree over here or the Holy Spirit talking to me or Allah giving me, uh, blessing me. It doesn't matter. They're all supernatural ideas. Now, mm -hmm. I won't disagree. People don't like me talking about their supernatural ideas. People don't like me saying uh, you're superstitious because superstitious means you, you don't base your, if you're superstition, it means you're not basing your ideas and your decisions on reality. You're basing basing your ideas on where the stars are in the sky. You're making decisions about whether God talked to you today or not. You know, there's there's that's not a very productive way to live life. So you can end up making some really bad decisions when you don't look at the reality. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to enter I don't mean to my intention is not to insult people. My intention is to say, if you want to make better decisions in your life, be more reality-based. Because I've never seen a handbook for astrology that made you better at making decisions about your life. I don't. I think you'd read the Bible till you're blue in the face, and you're still not going to make better decisions about anything. You may believe you make better decisions. Now, there's a difference between believing it and actually being able to do it. I mean, all those preachers that stand up every Sunday morning and say, give you, give us millions of dollars and you'll be, you'll, uh, you know, be rich yourself. <laughs> They're getting pretty rich on it, but nobody else mm -hmm. seems to be. Anyway, I, I don't know if that's an answer to your question or not. Uh, I think a lot of people need, and we can talk about this a little bit today if you want, Margot. A lot of people need some kind of emotional support in their world. And they, if they can't find it in reality, they find it in their fantasies. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the child who needs, who needs a uh, security blanket is expressing a real need. It, this is not, they need that security blanket to feel comfortable. Well, at, we grow into adults and we bring our security blankets right into adulthood. Being an adult is fucking hard. There, there's no doubt about it. Being a human being on this planet where so many things can happen bad is not easy. And we all want that security blanket. We all want our mommy or our daddy, our aunt or uncle, our doggy, somebody to hang on to. And I don't blame people for wanting that. It's it's a pretty natural, normal thing to, to want or need. Mm -hmm. It's not functional, though. It doesn't help you decide how you're going to get the mortgage paid. It doesn't help you decide how you're going to raise your children. In fact, it can help you make bad decisions about how to raise your children and, and hurt your children. Mm -hmm. And especially if you read, I mean, we'll talk about that more, but the, the childhood <laughs> issues, uh, childhood issues are really important in what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I think you're right, because I think, I mean, if I think back at when my mom grew up, she, you know, talking about sexuality or, or just kind of even being a secure attachment figure for someone wasn't really the norm. It's kind of just like toughen up, push through it kind of thing. 
Yeah. Um, and I feel like the, the, the faith that she's talking about gives her that emotional regulation that she's exactly. looking for. Yeah. And that's what you're talking. That's a great way to put it. It's emotional regulation, self-regulation. I actually have this in my notes today. So you're ahead of me already, Margot. <laughs> See, she, <coughs> excuse me. I've been sick for a couple of weeks and <coughs> still not quite over everything. So I may cough a bit here. So self-regulation is what, what uh, effective adulting looks like. And in order to in order to be a successful adult, you really have to be able to self-regulate. Some people, and there's lots of strategies for doing that. Some are better than others. And I'm just here to say, relying upon supernatural things that I can pray to Jesus and self-regulate is one way to do it. It it doesn't it doesn't necessarily do it and may actually create other problems because if you begin to rely upon supernatural things, you know. If, if Jesus didn't let me do it, then I, that's why I got, that's why I lost money at the gambling hall because I didn't pray to Jesus hard enough. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of bad things that can happen when you're not being rational about engaging with the real world and mm -hmm. Jesus or Allah or Buddha, you know, there's all sorts of places that people get this, this emotional security blanket and people may not like me saying it, using it that way, but that's what an adult an adult has to learn how to live without their security blankets, but we still need security. We still need, say, mm -hmm. a partner that cares for us. I mean, I'd probably not be here today if my partner hadn't taken care of me last week. And so there's mm -hmm. there's real need for that connection, that support. And if you never experienced that as a child and you're growing up into an adulthood and you're still seeking that, that's 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 why it's so hard for some adults to negotiate the world. So they, they don't know how to make those bonds. They don't have to connect with people and create alliances within mm. their adult life. And when they can't do that, then they rely upon Jesus or they rely upon the Bible. You know, the, something else has to be there. And those are, right. those are poor substitutes for a real human being. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, for me, I guess, and, I was kind of thinking about like what I use as a security blanket. And I, I mean, every night, almost every night before I go to sleep, I put on this um, Buddhist psychoanalyst. Um, so he incorporates science and Buddhist philosophy into his um, talks and meditations. Um, and I really like the philosophy that he teaches. It's it's more empowering in my, like, from what I understand, like he's giving us kind of tools to be able to self-regulate. Right. And right. I feel like that's what a lot of, you know, religions are kind of missing. They're not really giving you that tool. They're just asking you to blindly um, follow and rely on them. Well, They're Buddhism really is a Buddhism is probably the of all the religious options, and Buddhism is a religion. Don't let them fool you. Uh, <laughs> of all the religious options, Buddhism is certainly the best best of the choices, as long as you don't start pushing the supernatural idea of mm -hmm. you know, future lives and nirvana and you know all sorts of bullshit that has no basis in evidence. Mm -hmm. In fact, much of what we do use today. Um, in terms of mindfulness uh, mm -hmm. and other techniques, dialectical behavioral be therapy and some of those are directly rooted in some notions that came right out of, of Buddhism. Uh, I, mm. So so nothing wrong with, with that. And, and what you what you told me just now is that you have you used your own the term security blanket. Mm -hmm. I you know security blanket isn't a bad, I'm not going to put a judgment on it. There are no, good security blankets. No, uh -uh. there's good security blankets. There's bad security blankets. Right. If if you if you want to go to sleep listening to a well um, researched um, Buddhist therapist who's using evidence based kind of stuff, go for it. That's a pretty positive security blanket because you're going to wake up the next morning better able to self regulate. You're not going to let mm -hmm. the news media, the latest headline, upset you all day, that kind of thing. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. However, if praying that night 
for a half an hour before you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning and Jesus didn't answer your prayers, then you got a problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Everything in um, moderation and like taking pieces. I like to take pieces of kind of just what makes sense to me. Um, things that haven't been taught to me um, in terms of, of emotional regulation. Um, so that's kind of where I, where I lie with it. I really can appreciate his outlook on it too. He's like, he's, he just has a real reality based approach to his practice. So have you, have you ever listened to Alan Watts uh, series on Buddhism? I have not listened to that series. I've listened to some Alan Watts. Okay. It gets really far out there for me sometimes. <laughs> oh, like Alan Watts really can get far out there. Yeah, it really can. But he's fascinating. You know, and you got to take a yeah. bit of what he does with a grain of salt. But he definitely knows what he's talking about when it comes to the various branches of Buddhism and what they mean and don't mm -hmm. mean and all. So I, I found I'll listening to him years ago really, really fascinating. I'll definitely have to check that out. I haven't listened to him in a long time. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I can remember uh, Alan Watts personally. I didn't meet him, but uh, I'm old enough to remember him, you know, see him, see him live on television shows and stuff. Uh -huh. He was, he was something else. Quite an interesting yeah. character. Is he tied to a, I mean, he's tied to like a school of thought that he kind of pioneered? No, I, I don't think so i he ultimately i think he was an agnostic I, I he just was an expert on buddhism and i think he probably practiced you know some buddhist mm -hmm. aspects of it i don't know okay. you know i i wasn't that acquainted with him okay. but anyway well, we're going to talk about religious trauma today aren't we yeah do you want to go ahead and lead this <laughs> well i'm you're the specialist in this <laughs> I'm like, well, let me see. Since it is so ingrained in me. I'm like, mm, I'll pass that. <laughs> no, that's all right. Well, let's let's do that. I, I do. I I'm very happy. I'm I'm having fun doing this series, Margot. Uh, really, every mm -hmm. time we've sat down and talked, it's been a it's been a lot of fun, and I think we've been able to explore things. I appreciate the I appreciate the opportunity to simply explore these things and talk out loud about them. And uh, so thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Me too. Yeah, this has been amazing. So I want to talk um, about trauma, though. And that is, let's begin by talking about trauma as what trauma is and what it mm -hmm. isn't. So mm -hmm. first of all, trauma is not the general vicissitudes that we encounter every day in life. You know, things that upset us, a violation of our boundaries, maybe that sort of stuff. Things that, that we would... Uh, you know, we would look at somebody else and, and say, wow, that was, that really was harmful or hurtful, might not be that harmful or hurtful um, outside of our own, where we are at that particular moment. In other words, things happen that aren't traumatic. People aren't traumatized just right. because they're living. That's, and, and I think we hear people overusing the, the concept oftentimes, and they use overuse the word trigger uh, oftentimes. To be to be triggered is pretty serious. If you if you're experience, if you have experienced trauma and you experience a trigger, that's pretty serious. It may hard it may be hard for you to regain your your self regulatory balance if you if you've been triggered. So, but what I hear people saying is kind of flippantly. You know, it, yeah. it, people are taking the the day to day psycho psychological ideas and making them very mundane for example people say oh i've got ocd today well that's fucking mm -hmm. wrong because you don't have ocd <laughs> today you either have it or you don't and you don't yeah. want to you don't want to be ocd M most people right. suffer from it you you literally suffer from it mm -hmm. so let's let's not trivialize things that are that are difficult and have real uh, real life consequences for the people who do suffer from these things. So somebody who has encountered trauma, who's traumatized by something, the, the fundamental thing is they experienced what, what I'm going to just say simply, and I'm going to simplify a lot of the stuff here today because nobody wants to hear me lecture on about all sorts of brain stuff and hormones and stuff. <laughs> but let's just say 
uh, trauma is a change in the brain. We literally, uh, until about until about 20 years ago, you know, we had identified uh, back in the World War One shell. It was called shell shock. Soldiers were coming back from the war, and they were like, they couldn't function. They were, and they called it shell shell shock. And they may have lived their entire lives basically hardly able to feed themselves because a bomb, a piece of artillery exploded next to them and three other guys got blown to smithereens, their buddies. So that was trauma. We didn't have a word for it in World War I. World War II comes along and soldiers are coming back again from World War II and they call it battle fatigue because they noticed the longer somebody was in the heat of battle, the more likely they were to come back um, with this kind of condition. And that we call battle fatigue. And then we saw the same thing, similar things coming back from the uh, Korean War. They kind of learned how to manage it a little bit better than in Vietnam. You get people coming back who experience this battle fatigue. And for the first time, we're starting to label it as trauma. Because in the psychological literature, we're starting to realize that that there's something going on here. It's not, it's not just because the soldier was lazy. I mean, there's that that used to be, oh, he's just trying to get out of being in the battle because, you know, he's he's faking it. Well, they learned, they learned after a while that no, most of these people are not faking it. Their brain has literally have been scrambled in right. some way, shape, or form. So from the Vietnam War comes the notion that there's something going on here that's that's real. It took a long time for the military and the political people uh, of the United States, mainly, uh, to start acknowledging this. And in fact, it wasn't acknowledged until the Iran-Iraq War, when we have soldiers going to the, in, in 1990, going to the war and coming back with this same set of symptoms. And it's a whole set of symptoms that is pretty characteristic of people that we now know experience trauma. Well, with the advent of good medical technology, specifically MRIs, the, uh, the medical profession and researchers were able to start doing MRIs of people's brains. Mm -hmm. People are coming back with this set of symptoms. And what they, could, what they could find was things like the hippocampus inside our brain shrank while the amygdala has expanded. Mm -hmm. Out of proportion to what you would expect in a normal brain, a brain that's just basically, I mean, the brain is a set of, of uh, modules, if you will, that are all connected mm -hmm. with nerves. And, you know, it's like a telephone system. Everything's connected. Well, there's a specific optimal way for the brain to wire itself. If something happens that disrupts that wiring... For example, a, tr a traumatic experience increases your heightened fear of your environment, then the components of your brain that respond to fear or are, are part of the fear, fear um, cycle, if you will, are going to be strengthened. It's almost like, you know, a, a muscle. You use a muscle enough, it gets stronger. Well, right. if you use your fear cycle long enough, it gets stronger and stronger. And well, what they identified in the 90s, I mean, in the, in the mid 2000s to early two, uh, uh, late wow. 2000s, was the fact that soldiers had soldiers with what we now know P, call PTSD were coming back with expanded amygdalas and reduced hippocampus, among other things. Mm -hmm. What it told us, what we now know, is they're 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 hypersensitive to their environment. You know, so you get the story of the soldier that hears a firecracker and he hits the floor because he thinks mm -hmm. he's been shot at. Well, that means he, his brain is not engaging in the, in the environment in a rational way. And it would be a good thing not to be rational in the, in the traditional sense of you're in Iraq with a bomb coming down at you or a mortar or guns shooting at you, but you're not there now. So how do you recalibrate so you're back in the civilian world and a firecracker is just a firecracker? Mm -hmm. So that's where this all comes from. We now know, uh, Margot, we now know that you can look at an MRI and actually see the results of stress. Post-traumatic stress disorder 
can be seen on MRI. Now, what happens if we look at it from people who were abused as children, say physically abused as children, or, or you know, what if we? What happens if we look at a a woman who is physically assaulted and abused by by their domestic partner? Well, what we're seeing is the same thing. It may not be a bomb falling, but if you're living with somebody who might beat the shit out of you every day, you live as if a bomb might fall at any minute. So your amygdala is going to expand. Your hippocampus is going to go down. You're not going to make good decisions. You're going to be more impulsive in, in many ways. You're not going to have good self-regulation. There's a lot of things that happen when these two get out of balance. And the amygdala starts, or the not the amygdala, but the, the stress cycle starts taking over. And you start looking more and more like that soldier who hits the ground every time. So let me give you an example. The soldier hits the ground when they hear that backcracker. But the woman who was abused for years by her domestic partner, she doesn't hit the ground. She starts uncontrollably crying. Or, or she runs in a bedroom, hides, and doesn't go outside for five days. You know, there's, there's things going on that are of similar nature. And the same thing could be true of a child who's been abused. You know, now we got a child whose normal development was interrupted by abuse of some kind. And now the child is hiding. Child won't go to school anymore. Child's doing bad in school. Child can't make friends. You know, there's lots of things that start happening. There may be signs that the child was uh, is experiencing some level of trauma. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so that's what trauma is. It's a change mm -hmm. in the brain. Mm -hmm. And it can be seen. Now, I, I'm not going to say that if you think you've experienced trauma, you go to the doctor, get an MRI, and they'll tell you, oh, yeah, you're traumatized. I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> For one, you're probably not going to get, there's, the doctor isn't going to be qualified to even diagnose it. So that's another issue. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I'm, and this is all I'm, happening kind of in the unconscious, unconscious realm of their brains. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. it has to do with the wiring being connected. Mm -hmm. You know, our brains, our brains start wiring the minute, you know, the minute the brain starts developing in, in utero, it's starting right. It's starting. Oh, I'm sending. I'm going to send a dendrite here and an axon there, and I'm going to, you know, send stuff all around. And then what happens with with the with the childhood brain, the infant and childhood brain, is they we're brain we're born with a brain that's like three quarters, two thirds of three quarters the size it's going to be as an adult. We have by mm -hmm. far the biggest brains of any species on the planet when they're when we're born, relative to other species at that same age. And what our brains do is just put out a, a, a massive, massive number of connections all over the brain. It puts out far more connections on the brain than you'll ever need. And so from the day, pretty much from the day you're born, all those connections have been sent out there and it's going to continue to send more out there. But over the next few years, next couple decades, the brain starts pairing them back. It's like pruning a tree. You know, as a pre, I'm a gardener, so you let a tree get out of get out of control, a lot of things happen. It won't have as much fruit. It won't be able to. Right. It won't be as healthy and stuff. So you prune a tree. Well, what, that's what happens in your brain. Your brain starts pruning itself, it's saying, "Oh, we're not using this wire here, so let's just get rid of it. Why keep a wire we don't need?" And mm -hmm. It starts pruning those things back. Well, what happens if at two or three years old? or even five, six, seven years old, the child is being subjected to some kind of abuse or stress or potential trauma in their environment. The brain is saying, oh, we're not using this one, but we are using this one. Mm -hmm. So it pairs back the one that goes to the hippocampus and increases the one that goes to the amygdala. And now we've got a kid that's programmed to respond to stress with aggression, respond to stress with crying, respond to stress with... Uh, maladaptive behaviors, uh, mm -hmm. a failure to learn, a failure to thrive. There's lots of things that start happening with a child because the brain is just trying to do its job and it's it can't do it properly. And you end up with a child that's got a lot of wiring towards the fear cycle, but not a lot of wiring towards the hippocampus that can help them regulate that fear. So, you know, we could, I want to just throw out the, the word, 
unconscious is, is you know, it's not very useful when we're talking about uh, biological wiring because mm -hmm. the cells don't, the cells aren't conscious or unconscious. They're just doing their thing. <laughs> right. It's like, are you conscious that your heart's beating right now? No, you're probably not. Uh, are you conscious that a wound is healing on your finger from a cut you got last week? No, you're probably not. And well, that's kind of the way it's going on in the brain. You know, the brain's doing its thing and there's no conscious or unconscious about it. However, it has the it has the effect ultimately of of interfering with your ability to self regulate. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. So, what would be some form of religious trauma? Like, would shame be a part of that? Um, yes. Yeah. That cycle that I guess shame would fall into the fear cycle of you know trying to branch out and. I don't know, for example, explore your sexuality, but there's so much shame surrounding that. So you just choose to shut it down, shut it down, yeah, shut it down. Exactly. Right. Yeah. As you're growing up, you're getting messages from your culture, from your family, from your environment. Mm -hmm. And those messages help the brain decide what to pair off and what not to pair off. And if you're being, if you're being told, you know, our God thinks you're a worthless piece of shit and you're not, you're not, um, you're a sinful person, your body right. is your enemy, all these, all these messages. And, oh, by the way, you get punished for acting like a normal child, uh, you know, right. masturbating or, you know, or, or playing in a, in a way that is inappropriate or eating food that's inappropriate, any of those things. And it could be, or acting too gay. <laughs> I mean, I know kids who got, <laughs> I got the shit beat out of them when they were 10 years old because they were acting too gay. I mean, this, of course, and I'm, I'm 70 years old, so I remember a different time and place, pretty bad back then. So that person is being hurt by those messages mm -hmm. and their brain is responding. And so it's not unlikely that they will be traumatized by the religious ideology. I mean, you can be traumatized as a child by just an alcoholic parent that beats you. It has nothing mm -hmm. to do with religion. But religion oftentimes motivates certain abuses I mean, the whole notion of spare the rod, spoil the child, that comes right out of the Bible. So if, what if does that mean exactly? It means uh, if you don't beat your kid, they're going to grow up to be spoiled. Oh, okay. Yeah. Spare the rod, <laughs> spoil the child. Okay. That makes sense. My parents believe that. Uh, it's in, I believe, the book of Proverbs. Spare the rod, so spoil funny. the child. Yeah. I had um, a rod growing up. Like we had to like go get the rod, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you know I what? had no idea where that came from. <laughs> yep, that's where it comes from, right out oh, of the Bible. Oh my god! <laughs> wow, that's that makes so much sense. Wow, interesting. So people can be traumatized by religious ideologies because they they impose an unnatural. Um, regimen on the child, whether that be behaviorally or sexually. I mean, think about this. What if you were raised in a Puritan family in Massachusetts in, you know, 1680, where you, where, if, you know, children would be seen and not heard. You open your mouth mm -hmm. and you'll get a spanking. And you, and this mm -hmm. is starting from the day you're born, practically. What would that do to you as an adult? And then you look at some of the cults that we've we see now and the way they raise children the way baptists treat children with respect to punishment i mean these books these christian books that come out about how to beat your children for jesus there are literally books on how to do this properly oh my god i didn't yeah. know as long as you don't leave too many bruises it's okay because jesus loves you oh there's there's hor wow. horrible books out there on this stuff so what you see is it's it's the ideology that teaches the parents how to treat their children. So mm -hmm. it's it's religious abuse, and we can define it as religious abuse, because the abuse comes from a belief in an ideology. And that, whether that's Baptist mm -hmm. or Puritan or Catholic or Muslim ideology, it matters not. It's still religious in its in its source. Mm -hmm. So the child ends up with a with a pattern in their brain that 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 is we would now characterize as, as trauma now that 
they may have trouble functioning as an adolescent or trouble functioning as an adult. They may not even point back. They may not really understand, especially if they stay in the religion. Nobody's going to say, oh, you're traumatized because of the way your parents treated you under the Baptist ideology. No Baptist minister is going to say that because <laughs> he's preaching the shit in the morning, right. every Sunday morning. So there's a lot of people, and I've, I've seen this so much, Margo, a lot of people walking around as adults displaying childhood trauma. And if you talk yeah. to them long enough, you ask them where, where that trauma, where that behavior is coming from, they can oftentimes identify it from a root coming from their childhood. Well, why did their parents treat them that way? Because their parents were devout Baptists or Catholics or Muslims. It, it, you know, that's, that's how we know it's, that's why we call it religious trauma because it's trauma that was motivated through a religious ideology. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'm curious what, like, I'm sure through your organization, Recovering from Religion, you get, I mean, I know you get people from all over the world. Um, and I'm just curious kind of what people from the United States, um, since we're not under that, I mean, I wouldn't say in all areas we're not under extreme forms of prosecution, but I'm sure in some areas we are. Um, and I'm curious what people first will reach out and kind of say to you or say to the receiving person um, of like, I'm experiencing, you know this kind of trauma and like how did where does it go from there how do you start the process of healing with that person well we're not therapists um i mean i'm a therapist obviously but our volunteers are not therapists we mm -hmm. can refer them to therapists who can help them with religious trauma but here's what happens and it's, it's not unique by a long shot to the united states we see it from all over the world and the mm -hmm. symptoms are similar symptoms are oftentimes dealing with, I have trouble sleeping. I have trouble with the relationship with my parents because they're still religious and I'm trying to get out of that. Um, symptoms all, oftentimes are dealing with fear of hell. I can't go to sleep mm -hmm. at night because I'm afraid of hell or I can't get okay. it off my mind. Symptoms also include intrusive thought processes. I, I can't keep, I can't stop. The thoughts keep coming in my head. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? I want to. I want to get away from this because it was. It was very. I'm gay. My parents kicked me out of the house, and I still think, I'm the. I'm the bad person here. I'm mm -hmm. gay. My parents kicked me out of the house, and I'm the bad person for being gay. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's crazy, and it will make yeah. you crazy if you buy into that. And people call us thing. I know logically. I can think logically through this all, but emotionally, I can't. So what we see over and over again, Margo, is people are calling us saying, logically understand how devastatingly bad religion has been for me. Emotionally, I can't get over that. I can't get over that. So what we've noticed, and we've, I've noticed this for years, is the logic precedes the emotions. So somebody can get themselves mentally out of church um, for years and still have the emotional component. They can't, they can't stop thinking about Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm going to hell. Oh, what if Jesus is watching me right now? What if I have sex that's disapproved by God? I'm not even a religious person anymore, and I'm still afraid to masturbate. So those are all symptoms of something else going on there. And logic, here's the, here's the problem that almost all of our clients face. Logic doesn't get you out of this problem. It doesn't get you out of this hole that religion threw you into. It's literally a hole religion threw you into, an emotional hole. Mm -hmm. You have to do some things, and there's some things you can do for yourself, but you also may need therapy. You may need somebody to help you through this that understands how trauma is formulated and created in the brain and how to overcome those. Now, I do, I do want to back up just a little bit. I, I described all the horrible things and stuff with, with respect to childhood. But we do know that if there's mitigator, there are mitigating things and people around a child, they will not necessarily experience trauma. 
uh, what we what we've seen in the research shows, and I'll refer you to um, uh, adverse childhood experiences survey that you can just go online. It's called ACE Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, and you can take that. It's put out by the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, and it is uh, based on a ton of research over the last twenty years on childhood childhood trauma. So take mm -hmm. that. What you may find is you are experiencing childhood trauma as an adult. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's got it's a simple test, not very many questions. Hard, not easy to, not not hard at all to to take. Right. So what you've got, what they found was every time there's certain traumas that you can have an environmental trauma. I mean, uh, you can have a physical trauma, a parent that beats you, uh, an environmental trauma, a bomb goes off next to your house. Uh, you can have other kinds of trauma, like a chemical trauma. You were exposed to, you know, some bad chemical in your environment. There's a lot of potential sources of trauma, religion being one of those sources. But if you've got somebody around you to help mitigate this, it's it's like if the poison, it's like, I'm, let me just use a, an example of poison. If if the child accidentally takes some something that's poisonous, and you get the child to the hospital fast enough and get the antidote in them, they may not they not suffer any consequences. They might have died from the poison, but but the fact is they got the antidote, they didn't die. Well, there's that kind of thing with respect to trauma. If you've got somebody, some people or some sport structures around a child, and they experience potential traumatizing event, then if their mother, if they got a really supportive mother around, or they got an aunt they can always go talk to, or if they've got a teacher that understands them and listens to them, that can be like the antidote to the poison. It could drain away the poison for the child so that they don't become traumatized by the whatever the activating event was. I mean, maybe a kid's bullied at school, and bullying can literally be traumatizing to, to some kids. But what if what if you come home and you got a really supportive set of parents and they help you learn strategies for dealing with the trauma? You know, or maybe you get a therapist that helps you de deal with uh, the consequences. I mean, any of these things could be mitigating to the, to the potential traumatizing things. So I'm just trying to balance things out. Just because you had traumatizing, potentially traumatizing events as a child doesn't mean you're traumatized now. Right. And... And I mean, I I can look back on my childhood and think I went through some shitty stuff as a child. I didn't experience trauma from it, but I had some great parents. I had some grandparents. I mean, I had resources. And if you've got resources around you, a therapist, a counselor, a good teacher, a parent, those can mitigate a lot of the potential harm that uh, that's normal in any childhood. Yeah. I, I am curious, um, since trauma is kind of like a spectrum, well, it is a spectrum. What are some of the like self-regulation tactics that you could provide someone on the street who doesn't necessarily have access to a therapist, um, ways that they can kind of just come back to center and give that support to themselves? There's a lot you can do. I think the, uh, the main thing is to become, a, a person needs to become aware of of what is triggering the trauma. Because uh -huh. every time you get triggered, you kind of relive the trauma. It, it kind of right. restarts and goes back through the whole. It's like, um, <laughs> it's almost like starting a car. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you hit the start button, the car goes through a set of cycles. You know, the electrical cycle, the gas cycle, the fuel cycle. All these cycles start up and then the car starts and starts running. Well, that's obviously, it's good for a car to start. However, if you're, to use the metaphor, if you hit the trauma button, if you hit the trigger button and the car starts, that's a bad start. You don't want that cycle to start right. up. You don't want the gas to start flowing, the electricity to start shit, hitting the spark plug and all that. So I like to use that as a metaphor for helping people know, help, you, becoming aware of what 
what those what that button is, you know, going to your mother-in-law's house and she's starting making you pray over dinner and all of a sudden you're in a panic attack. Uh, that's a good thing to know. Now, so, but you can't do much about it if you don't even know the triggers, if you're not made aware. So being mindful of what it, what causes these, what causes your heart rate to go up, what causes your stomach mm -hmm. to just turn into a knot what causes your breathing to change? You know, what causes you to have intrusive thoughts? Oh, I, you know, I, I saw that billboard. Now I can't get this shit out of my head. Uh, all those things are good things to know. But once you know, what do you do with them? Mm -hmm. And the next step is to go find some help in probably mindfulness training or some mm -hmm. kind of, and, and meditation. But mindfulness will help you become aware and short circuit the, um, the the energy that's coming in, if you will, from from the trigger. So it'll, mm -hmm. you hit the button and nothing happens. That's what you really want. The, you hit the button yeah. and nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. So you go to your mother-in-law's house. Exactly. You go to your mother-in-law's mm -hmm. house. She says, let's all pray. And you say, okay, go through this again. But I, I'm not going to get a panic attack. I see a billboard say you're going to hell. I don't get thoughts of hell for the next three weeks in my brain. You hit the button, nothing happens. So I think I want to, I want to say that I think most people, if, if you indeed take this test, the uh, um, adverse childhood experiences survey, and mm -hmm. you identify that, yeah, you in fact are experiencing some trauma. I want to be real clear. It is very difficult to get yourself out of trauma, out of it, out of, of the trauma yeah. cycle. I'm not saying you can't, but I know people who spend decades trying to get themselves out of the trauma cycle, and the button keeps being hit, and they go through the cycle, hit and cycle, hit and cycle. Well, how many times do you want to suffer? Because it is suffering. It is right. painful. Panic attacks are not fun, uh, among other things. Intrusive thoughts are not fun. So when people say, I can't afford therapy, I, I fully understand money is a problem. I, I'm not denying that. I want to also ask how much time and money and pain, physical pain, does it cost you every time you go through one of these cycles? And if you do it year after year, day after day, if you miss days at work, if you right. disrupt families, if you if you lash out at your children and treat them the way you were treated when you were abused, I mean, I think you need to look at the, at the cost of trying to do it yourself and then ask yourself, uh, do I have enough money? If I don't have enough money to have some kind of therapy, then I need to also recognize I'm, I'm probably going to continue to suffer. And more importantly, or just importantly, I'm going to make other people suffer too. If you've right. got kids and you're traumatized, you're going to pass that trauma onto your children. Mm -hmm. You're going to lash out because you can't handle the stress yourself. You, right. you yell at your kids when you shouldn't yell at your kids. You beat your kids. I was beaten by my parents, so I'm going to beat you. You know, that kind of mentality. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's insidious. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, it's crippling. Um, so your organization recovering from religion if someone reached out to you what would what would the process look like and like how would you be able to offer assistance well we can do it in a couple of different ways maybe more uh, first of all you just go to recoveringfromreligion.org and hit the chat button and when you hit the mm -hmm. chat button you'll be able to talk to a trained volunteer they're not a therapist but I'll guarantee you, I just saw, I probably saw three people just this morning. I mean, it's a little afternoon now at where I'm at. I probably saw three people chat in with us that I would say I could diagnose having some kind of trauma just yeah. by what they described to us. So what our, what our agents are trained to do is help you learn some grounding tools, how to ground yourself, how to bring yourself back down, how to self-regulate. We can give you a few of those tools or at least get you started on the way. We can point you to resources and books and videos mm -hmm. and meditation things, but we are not doing therapy. We cannot do that. We're not therapists. 
uh, once once we've talked you through and we understand where you are, we can then point you towards the resources I mentioned. We can mm -hmm. also point you or invite you to, into our community where you can talk to other people who are dealing with virtually the same thing you are. Okay. Maybe you're an extra Mormon. You can talk to other ex-Mormons and Baptists and stuff. And then the, the second major thing we can do is we can point you towards the Secular Therapy Project where right. we've got um, about 480, last count, 480 uh, registered licensed psychotherapists in seven different countries, most mm -hmm. of whom are going to be very familiar with the trauma and, and even most of them are going to be religious, familiar with the religious trauma specifically. So you'll have the opportunity to connect through our website, seculartherapy.org, and get a real professional that knows, knows what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So those are the two main ways that we can we can help people if they contact Assess. us. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think a lot more people need that than, yeah. than they truly realize. I, I want to emphasize something that we, we've mentioned several times here, and that is to the listeners. The most important thing, I think one of the most important life skills you will ever develop is the ability to self-regulate. Mm -hmm. We all encounter stressful environments. We all encounter unexpected bumps in the road. Th that's just the way life is. If you're alive, you're going to have you're going to have these things happen. What makes life worth living and makes life joyful and allows you to thrive in life is to have the skills to regulate your emotions. You're not a robot. You're never going to be a robot. But when emotions get out of control, they cause really nasty consequences mm -hmm. and they create problems for you. If you can keep your emotions within a bandwidth, you know, let's, let's say, you know, you want to keep your emotions about this, you know, high to low, that's where you want to be. And if, if you let your emotions get way off the chart, it's really hard to come back down. Or if you let your emotions get too far down here, it's really hard to come back up. So yeah. we want to keep ourselves self we know self-regulate so that we've got we're gonna go through life's up and downs, but when we hit a really hard spot, we've got the skills to to walk through that. And those skills mm -hmm. are gonna help us a lot in maintaining positive relationships with our partners, for example, in understanding the needs of our children. And it's gonna make your life so much happier. No, I'm, I'm, nobody is in danger of becoming a robot. I have too many feels. Well, if I don't feel my emotions, I'll become a robot. No, you, you're going to feel your emotions. I guarantee that you can't get away right. from that. <laughs> Until you're dead, then you're not going to feel your emotions. Uh, yeah, so I just think the self-regulation thing, and I'm really glad you brought that word up earlier, Margo, because that's the key to being a healthy human being. Yeah, It helps, helps your brain stay where it needs to be. And at the beginning, you mentioned that people, you know, you don't want to bore people with all of the different chemicals and hormones that are being produced in our brain. But I definitely think that understanding some of the hormones and some of the chemicals that are being produced in your brain, how to regulate those, because it's not like a stress response is a... Um, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, an emotional response is it's responding to the chemicals and hormones that are being produced in your body. And then you're putting like thoughts and emotions attached to those chemicals that are being produced. And I, something that really helped me with self-regulation was understanding my hormonal cycle and knowing like when I'm higher, uh, when I'm producing more estrogen or progesterone or cortisol or any like just those three simple hormones really helped me to take space for myself at certain times of the cycle uh, so that I wouldn't overwhelm myself or break you know just kind of go into like a state of freeze um, and then also gave me more compassion for myself and understanding that like, okay, this is a part of being a human. And um, as long as they weren't like majorly, majorly out of control, 
I was able to take the necessary steps in order to um, regulate those hormones. Um, I just think that that's a really key element, the the science behind all of yeah. all of the emotions that you're feeling. Well, you've hit on something that's it's a quite fascinating in the study of psychology. There's the concept of attribution theory. And mm-hmm. what you've just described is brilliant. And you're learning that is, is beautiful. What people do is they go, their, their bodies are constantly producing hormones. I mean, as I'm right. sitting here, my body's producing hormones and so is yours. However, we, we have a, a brain that tends to try and label what's going on here. So I could have a, I could have a turn in my stomach as I'm sitting here talking to you and I could think, I could think, oh, that's my breakfast. Or I could say, no, it's because Margot made a bad face at me and now she's mad at me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Both are hormones. I mean, the mm-hmm. stomach did something and it released a hormone. I then have to interpret what that means. And what people do is they they misattribute. It's called attribution theory. And within that is the notion that we misattribute. We 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 attribute our feelings to the wrong thing. And there's actually some really interesting experiments gone back in the 90s where they would, um, for example, inject inject a placebo in a person or inject a um, um, cortisol or adrenaline into the person. And then they would, sh- they would show them pictures and stuff. And then they would ask why, how people are feeling and what they attribute that feeling to. Well, and I I don't have time to go in, and I'd have to familiar myself with the um, mm-hmm. with the experiment. But basically, what it was is if if I got a placebo, and I saw all these different pictures, I'd probably say, um, yeah, that picture disturbed me a little bit, but not a big deal. Mm-hmm. If I got the adrenaline and I saw the same set of pictures, that really pissed me off watching that. So what they would see is they would they would attribute their piss offness or their emotional heightened emotion to the picture, not to the fact that they got an injection of adrenaline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we do this all the fucking time. And I want to speak specifically to those who identify as males. Because, I mean, you know, we know the females go through a monthly cycle of, of, of hormonal a monthly hormonal cycle. But let me tell you guys, you do too. Mm-hmm. It may not be as apparent and it may not be 28 days, but if you pay attention, if you're a male identified person, if you pay attention, you will notice that your body, your emotions, uh, things, various things go up and down and they change over time. And that is hormones. It's probably because you're releasing you know, more cortisol because you had a bad conversation with your, with your boss today, uh, you know, or you had to deal with a customer or, or, you know, or your children are yelling and you don't know how to deal with it. Those are all, every time that happens, something hormonal is happening and it can go over cycles of a month or two months. I've watched my, my life and my body. I'm talking personally here and I, I can almost identify because I can see things like like my own sexual energy. I can see my sexual energy go way up some sometimes mm-hmm. and way down other times. And I, me, I'm not I'm not the I'm not going to say I'm the same as every man or every male identified person, but I have a cycle it's about 60 to 90 days. Right, I have over my lifetime. And I could just see my sexual energy go out the roof for a while and then it would plummet back down, become more manageable. <laughs> And then mm-hmm. I might lose a lot of just interest in sex for a few days, and then it goes back up again. And it's a it's a wave cycle almost. So don't don't let anybody tell you if you're a male identify that you're not that you're not experiencing hormonal changes on a regular basis. We all do. And yeah, absolutely. Doing what you said, Margot, is awesome when you pay attention to that stuff. Yeah, I think it's key. It's empowering too, and it's kind of a relief. It's like okay, I'm actually more in control of what's going on by understanding what's, you know, what's being produced. Yep. Right. Yeah. It was a definite um, turning point in my life. Uh, 
because I would get so bogged down sometimes of like, I'm not producing as much as I should be this week. And I would just start hammering myself and then I would go into this like panic state and then I would get nothing done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, I mean, it, there are times of the month where I should be more creative and there are times of the month where I need to take a step back and be more reflective. Right. Um, yeah. So understanding that was just kind of really helped in the, in the process of self-regulation. And um, that is, that is a mindfulness skill. Yeah, what you've just described absolutely. is becoming mindful. You're paying attention to your body and you're mm -hmm. asking reasonable, rational questions based upon evidence. You know, this is right. five days after my period. What do I usually feel five days after my period or three days before my period? That's all that is based on a rational analysis. It can't help but make your life more even keel and make you more productive and, and be happier. Yeah. Yeah, be happier and and take time out for yourself. I I don't know. I'm very like organized. I'm like time slots for everything. And so now that I kind of understand what hormones are being produced, I can be like, okay, this is the week, and I feel it inside of me, and I'm planning for it. This is when I'm going to start like starting new projects, or this is the week when I'm going to finish my projects, and yeah. Yeah. just really helps. Um, just helps. But do you have any? Uh, last words or closing thoughts for our listeners on this really beautiful topic that we got to cover. Well, I don't know how beautiful trauma is, but okay. <laughs> I, uh, I do want to think. Go ahead. I think it is. I think just like your um, attention to this uh, topic is not. It's not common. And I, I think what I meant to say was like, I see the passion that you have in, in working with people who, um, who struggle with this kind of like disability really. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to have the opportunity. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to do these. And this whole series has been a, a blast to me. I do want to end with one thing, and that is, I want to add something I did not say earlier, and it kind of add it kind of puts a bow on the uh, on our conversation, and that is that um, as we've already established, a good deal of trauma happens in childhood, a good deal of the wiring and pairing of the wiring happens as you get into adolescence, uh, mm -hmm. but it's it's important to remember that no matter how, where the person is in the life cycle up to up to about age 22 to 25 the brain is still developing right and especially in children it's important for us to realize the prefrontal cortex in the human brain is not is not finished until a, a child is somewhere around 22 or 24 years of age so those if a child is experiencing a lot of stress, if there's trauma going on, if there's traumatizing things going on, that poor brain is trying to deal with that external environment that's external stress and it's not prepared for it. So I wanna, I wanna ask for us to be more forgiving, more understanding, more cognizant <laughs> that the adolescent brain ain't ready for adult, adult decisions. Even the early adult brain is not ready for adult decisions sometimes. So we, we just being mindful, okay, my brain is still telling me to do some crazy things or I don't know why I made that dumb decision. You know, people do this to themselves. And let's be more forgiving ourselves, recognize it's okay to say, my brain still got a ways to go. I, that's probably why I made that bad decision. Uh, I went and, uh, you know, there's there's reasons. So just be a little more aware because what you just said earlier, Margo, about your own hormonal cycle, we can look at as the life cycle too. You know, where's the mm -hmm. brain finished developing? And you can just be aware. I wish we had a course that said, look, 14 year olds, you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time understanding some of this. And part of it's because your brain hasn't finished developing. Mm -hmm. And we could give kids some strategies that wouldn't require a fully developed prefrontal cortex. <laughs> Nobody's doing mm. that yet, but I think in the future, what if we had courses for 14-year-olds that said, here's pre-prefrontal cortex strategies for, for 
kids in high school or junior high. <laughs> right. I love that. Well, wow. it's a crazy idea, but uh, anyway. I mm, need to. It's I progressive. Need yeah, it's pretty, 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 yeah, well, anyway. My voice is about to go, Margo. Good to talk right. to you again, and we'll talk again yeah. soon. Absolutely. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Stay tuned for part four, BDSM and non-monogamy through the eyes of a religious trauma specialist. That's going to be a very juicy one, especially for those who are engaged in the lifestyle or curious about it. So as always, uh, you can find upcoming episodes on thepsycho.com as well as blog posts. And music is Face In It by Fallen for Autumn on Instagram. That's F-A-L-L-E-N-F-O-R-A-U-T-U-M-N. Go give her some love and I'll see you guys next time. Let's get it. Now you wrap your hands around my waist and bury your face in it around my